This is American Beauty, a podcast about the difficult but beautiful work of democracy in our moment. I'm Joanna Brooks. If you feel like something is at stake right now, something much deeper than winning and losing elections, you're not alone. Democracy is about how we live, talk, think, and fight with each other. It's everyday work, and a lot of it is done by women. This podcast amplifies the voices of women like you who are doing the work now, and the voices of women experts who can help us see more clearly and get grounded for the work that lies ahead. It's a conversation in three parts. Episode six, part one. People talk about political self-care, but there's gotta be more to it than yoga and a manicure. I'm sitting on the floor of Gretchen Malios' private practice therapy office here in San Diego. She's sitting on the floor too. Everything about her is clear and centered from her luminous makeup-free face to her bare feet. The microphone is between us. She's turned off her lavender diffuser so she doesn't create a buzz on tape. Gretchen seemed to me like the right person with whom to have a conversation about self-care, what it is and what it isn't. It's a phrase we've seen a lot of since November 2016. People who found the election and all that has followed unsettling have been told to practice self-care with means ranging from scented baths and organic kale smoothies and pedicures to taking your medication, working on your addiction to sugar or caffeine, and sticking to your yoga and exercise. And that's all good advice. But there must be more to the concept, right? It's not just about insulating ourselves against difficult reality, is it? When we know how to engage in self-care that really has integrity, yes. and has like deeper value, yes, than that's what we want. A surface self-care, <laughs> yes. then we um, we make an impact. Yes. So I like to think of self-care um, not in that cliche term that we kind of throw out. Yes. Right. Um, that then loses its meaning because mm-hmm. it's so diluted. I like to think of it actually as a highly, highly skillful tool Yeah, with a very deep purpose. And we need that tool now because the week I'm talking to Gretchen, news is broken that the government has forcibly separated refugee children, including children of, quote, tender age, from their parents, putting some in large holding pens in abandoned Walmarts in Texas, and distributing others under the cover of night to facilities across the country. We've heard the recorded cries of toddlers and young children separated from their parents. And we know the U.S. has separated families before, through slave trading, through boarding schools, through American Indian children, through mass incarceration in our own time. But refugee children in cages is a fresh assault on human rights, and on our sense of what American democracy is and has been. And Gretchen really feels it, especially as a therapist trained to work with trauma stemming from childhood abuse or neglect. It's very provocative, and it could absolutely derail me and foment me into action and agitation and reactivity. And that would very probably undermine me making small, steady progress towards something productive, Mm -hmm. be it a fundraiser for legal defense, Mm -hmm. be it staying the course with the clients I do have access to, be it remaining hopeful that there is a way to help these people 
when we do have access to them. If I get into an emotional panic because their narrative and what's happening for them absolutely strikes a chord that is so painful for me because I know the effect this will have on them through my direct professional training and observations, (laughs) I could totally lose value to make an impact. And that's when it starts to make sense to me. Self-care isn't about escaping and soothing. It's a tool to move you from pain and reactivity back to effectiveness. I mean, I think of it like being a runner and you get an overuse injury. You work on treating the injury so you can get back out there. And so that is that what self-care does? It's the thing we do that helps us stay in the game? Yeah, yeah. How does self-care take us from individual reaction to connectedness and action? How does it link us to the bigger picture, to the work of democracy? How do we move from individual grief, anger, and suffering to repairing this wounded and wounding nation? Gretchen starts with her own story. I will, I will speak very personally about how, how I discovered the deepest meaning of self-care. So I went into social work in the late 90s, and I walked my way backwards into um, the path of child welfare, mm-hmm. which essentially child welfare in California is equivalent of CPS, Child Protective mm-hmm. Services. Um, so that's what, essentially what I was doing, is I was training to advocate for the, the care and safety of kids by looking at their home environments. Powerful, compelling, interesting, important, difficult. Uh, We don't have a system that is actually designed to bring about child well-being. We actually, what we call child welfare is in fact preventing or intervening once harm's been done, quite honestly. We don't keep kids well. We step in when someone else told us that they're not well. And even then, we only do a fraction of the time. So, okay. Hard career. And I didn't feel like I was making an impact. So I transitioned to mental health. But I was still interested in the population. I still cared about kids in foster care and kids in adoptive care who'd had compromised beginnings, and it was still affecting them. So I'm doing this with all my heart, and then I um, I get married to my husband, my best friend, and we start a family. And I'm thrilled and eager as I'll get out to start my own family after caring for so many other families. But I still had this call to action to take care of these other kids. So I was in this really intense bind. I was so compelled to keep doing my work that I was trained in that I wasn't giving myself time to be well and have a healthy pregnancy. I was young enough that I was really resilient physically and mentally, so I could keep getting by. But what I didn't know is I was increasingly like moving to scrape the bottom of the barrel of my energy and emotional reserve. I was going to give to my growing baby, and I was going to give everything to these kids in the foster care system, and I was going to come out in, a, in, in the red, energetically and emotionally. So my wonderful supportive husband was really asking me to take care of myself, and I just didn't know what that looked like, and I thought I was. And then my argument was always, I've got this, I've got this, I've got this, mm-hmm. I'm okay, I can do mm-hmm. this, I'm okay, I'm fine, I don't know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. So I have a healthy pregnancy and I have my daughter and sure enough, because I could carry so much stress and still be okay. We had a difficult start. You know, she was on edge probably because she'd been growing inside of a mom who was super on edge. And I had a lot of emotional makeup to do for her. I Mm. owed her a lot. 
Mm -hmm. I owed her a chance to feel safe. She was highly agitated and colicky and difficult to soothe. And, um, and I gave her everything to soothe her. And eventually I was trying to do that while also trying to make my way back to take care of other kids. And at some point, I think I just recognized and could hear my husband and actually could see in myself that her happiness and well-being was deeply tied to my well-being. Mm-hmm. That if my alleged whole goal was to be a good mother to her and a good wife to my husband and a good family member and a good professional and all these things, I was working against myself. That's really what it comes down to. I was working against my stated greater good. Yeah. And it took me, it really got to a point where my body physically broke down. My, I had a major issue with my whole right side of my leg and hip. It got to a point where I couldn't even walk normally. Um, I really looked like I was somebody who was going to live with a, a lifelong condition. I had this weird immobilized right leg and it turned out it all stemmed from hip and back issues that came out of pregnancy that I just never attended to. Attended to. Mm-hmm. I was nowhere there there. I was young enough that I had enough emotional or enough physical resiliency that I could cover for it mm-hmm. until my body said no more. Mm-hmm. Right. So I often, as a result of that joke and tease people that, you know, usually if we don't pick up on the cues, the mind's sending us, mm-hmm. the body will eventually <laughs> hold us accountable. The body does not yeah. lie. The body does not lie. Mm-mm. And so if you don't have the inner space and self-awareness to pick up on what your mind and heart and body are telling you, the body will give out on you. Mm-hmm. And the mind did. And so, um, yeah, that was just the gateway to me completely shifting my relationship to myself, but still finding my way back to my purpose. Mm-hmm. I still serve people. Like many of us, Gretchen feels she came wired with a sense of responsibility to help. So I knew I was here to care for people since I was very small. I was I was always somebody who noticed the huddled, poor, tired mess. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a story from my mom that when I was little and, you know, they had those feed the starving children in Africa. Oh, wow. Yes, of course. Um, so I would literally ask my mom if I could give her money so she could write a check and send it to the organization. Mm-hmm. Um, like I just, mm-hmm. I, I, there was no problem in the world that didn't somehow feel like I had some responsibility to act on it. And that's not a great and easy. <laughs> it's, not, it's not easy to be that. I can either. understand that feeling. Yeah, right? <laughs> and it's like you can't help it. And someone could tell you, you know, relax. That's silly. You know, you don't need to focus on that. But you know what? If, if that's how you feel in the world, that's just my, that was just my truth. I didn't feel like we could just ignore social injustice. She chose a career in social work. And her first year in her graduate social work program, she was assigned an applied internship. They tell me, okay, you're going to work at Venice Family Clinic, which is this free clinic in L.A. I know it. Great. Venice Family Clinic. Awesome. This place has a great reputation. Because I'm going to be doing social justice and I'm an agent of change. And I arrive there and they say, I say, so where's my placement? And they say, well, you're in the counseling department. And I looked confused. I said, okay, what am I going to do in the counseling department? I said, well, you're going to be a therapist. You're going to see clients. 
And I truly looked perplexed and I said, I don't understand. I'm here to do social work. Why, how am I supposed to be a therapist? And they said, well, this is, this is a clinical internship. And I said, why would a social worker do therapy? I had no idea. I had no idea in 1998, 20 years ago, that I was going to have my first entry into what has become the most fulfilling thing I could ever imagine doing. Aww. She looks back now and laughs. <laughs> did, um, I'm just, did no one at your graduate program indicate that this might be what you would need to do? I, I, I had no idea <laughs> that my, my first internship, I, I had no clue. I was only looking at social justice. I was only... So you were going to go, like, organize the people. I, yeah, I was going to do advocacy for children in the child welfare system. Yeah, 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 yeah. Poverty yeah, yeah, issues, yeah, yeah, yeah. housing, veterans. No, and they sent you in one-on-one in a room. In that first placement, Gretchen worked a lot with homeless veterans, with children provoked into gang membership by intense domestic violence. Tough stuff. Since then, she's done public sector child welfare, working with foster kids and their parents. She's worked with immigrant community groups and health promotoras, promoters, to foster good mental health care. She's done nonprofit work with new mothers facing postpartum emotional health issues. And she's been in private practice. Every phase of her work has brought her into close contact with people whose lives bear the consequences of large, hurtful social systems therapy, as important as it is individually, sitting in the therapist chair, you must just see these systems unfolding around you. And how do you not get overwhelmed? I mean, you know, honestly, the one thing that has carried me through, and I think this is a really valuable thing that I, um, I don't cling to in discomfort, I embrace, Mm. which is the incredible will of the human spirit. Oh, yeah. I was, I came to this realization in the last five or so years about what it takes to do trauma therapy. Mm-hmm. And really at its core, it takes the true deep belief in knowing, knowing that people have the capacity to heal and overcome yes. horrific experiences. Yeah. If I didn't know that, people would come into my, my office with these stories and I'd be terrified about yeah. what it was, what I would be sure they were always going to live with it. But I, I'm, I'm this weird, perverse person. I love trauma therapy because I love helping people discover that it does not define them. Hmm. And the, I mean, the super glue that holds their mosaic together when they piece together their story and heal out of it, that is a remarkable thing to bear witness to. You know, this, that struck me, that idea of the resilience of will, when I was hearing this terrible reporting from one of the people who quit from one of the tender age shelters talking about the kids young kids throwing chairs at windows to get out and I said well that is extraordinarily painful but look at the fight yes look at the fight that's look at the fight yes that look at the fight in those kids like after that migration after leaving what is that behavior telling us that 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 people have the ability to fight yeah and they're in In a good way we well, yeah, fight and like that, that when we yeah. are hurt yeah. and we're scared right. and we don't know if we can trust people. Right. We fight like that when we think it's the only way we're going to survive. Right. A few years ago, Gretchen enrolled in yoga teacher training because as a new mother, she'd let her practice wane. 
and she knew she needed it to stay well during her work in the community. Side note, I signed up for teacher training once, and I flunked out. I'm a boxer at heart. But Gretchen succeeded, and in addition to her yoga teacher training, she acquired a tool from the nursing profession called reflective practice, which trains caregivers to process how they do their work in relationship to their own feelings. She brought these tools of mindfulness and reflective practice into her work in a local mental health nonprofit. And I show up with all the integrity that I insisted that they were going to match me with. And I start doing essentially Mm mindfulness-based supervision. And I would actually start each session, an hour to two hours, depending if it was individual or group, with centering or meditation um, as a way to identify what was really happening for the person Mm -hmm. in the moment. And watching the effect it had on people and watching how eye-opening it was to them and watching how intrinsically right Mm -hmm. this was to help people to know how to be in touch with themselves in the moment was beautiful. I felt so grateful that I knew this through my yoga studies, through reflective practice. I was being given professional permission to help people be in touch with themselves. And so that was extremely validating The nonprofit turned out to once again have the same challenges that every nonprofit Mm -hmm. that I've worked in has had, which is they're, they're, we've talked about this, they have a mission that they profess, and I believe they truly believe in, Mm -hmm. but they're attempting to achieve that mission Mm -hmm. through practices that defy what their purpose is, right? So if they want to help communities live from a place of empowerment while they disempower their staff, that's something I'll see a lot, right? If they want to help communities heal and live in, um, you know, mutual healthy conditions and then they belittle their staff, that's something I'll see, right? And that's when Gretchen really realized that if you mean to work change in this world, you have to implement that change fully in the way you get your work done. Change has to start here, now in the very way we work, and working from adrenaline, competition, short-term gain, threat, woundedness, interpersonal strife, isn't going to help us change at all. That realization impacted the way she did therapy. She started to figure out how to incorporate mindfulness, meditation, and yoga into her private practice. And she set out looking for a space where she could have a traditional therapy practice with an actual yoga studio attached. She looked, and she looked. And there was this space in this building that I am in now that had um, 800, 700 to 800 square feet, one studio, didn't share it with anybody else, with open space plan that they could break down the walls. It was an affordable rent. It didn't have everything I needed, but it had enough that I needed, and I could design it the way that I needed for yoga to happen. They had, of course, overhead fluorescent lights, but they had been changed out to low emission LED lights with filters, and they could add a dimmer so that when people were laying down, they weren't getting blared by like the harsh light is very overwhelming for some people. It's too stimulating. Yeah. You know, they could change that. They could put in the floors that I needed that were going to be soft enough. They could insulate the walls so there wasn't going to be neighboring sound. And voila, you should see the place. It's pretty magical. You have a therapist's office mm-hmm. that opens up to you. You enter first mm-hmm. before you come back to your little zone of therapist. Mm-hmm. 
there's a yoga studio. Like, it's like your yoga studio. There's like a box for shoes and there's like mats and bolsters and blocks and blankets and the whole thing. And a mirror. No, no mirror. No mirror. I don't do mirroring here. Oh, good. Even better. Yeah. I mean, every... And so you've started teaching classes and doing therapy, like in the same professional practice. Of course... Neither of us thinks it's any coincidence that this shift in her practice from individual self-care to collective self-care happened at a critical time in our political life. Gretchen traces it back to the financial crisis of 2008. Around 2000, between 2008 and 10, because right before Obama came into office, there had already been a major economic crash. People were losing their homes. There was the housing crisis. There was the whole mortgage crisis with people getting exploited and having their mortgages turned upside down and blue payments and people who thought they could trust a system to help them mm-hmm. determine what they could and couldn't afford. Right. Um, turned out that they couldn't trust that system and mm-hmm. they, they made bad choices and yeah. lived the consequences of it. And I remember this period of time, and I don't know exactly how many months it went on, but I remember this stretch of time where the newspaper was so shocking, at least in San Diego and probably in other parts of the world, with on a, on a regular frequent basis, homicide, suicide, family tragedies, mm-hmm. where couples were, or an individual in a family was taking the lives of their children mm-hmm. and their spouse. And it happened, I kid you not, repeatedly. Mm-hmm. You, I, you think I'm making this up repeatedly. Mm-hmm. People were taking the lives of their children and their spouses because their quality of life and their lifestyle had been devastated and they no longer knew a way out. They didn't know how to live with the shame or the pain or the lack or whatever it was that they were experiencing as financial ruin came upon them. And I don't, I don't, I'm not speaking to this from a place of blame or judgment. That is not what I'm meaning. I was shocked. Mm-hmm. I became aware of how profoundly ill-equipped our current country citizenry is to deal with emotionally charged, overwhelming stress. Our national go-to for dealing with painful and complicated feelings about the many crises we face in the American dream, from crumbling infrastructure to debt to environmental impacts, is to blame. The way that people have been taught to deal with discomfort is to find who's at fault. Hmm. Self-care offers a different pathway for dealing with loss, anger, disappointment. It means acknowledging these feelings And then instead of reacting by blaming others, acting by getting ourselves stabilized and connecting with others in a purposeful way. We don't need to control our feelings. We need to discover how to relate to our feelings, how to learn from our feelings. When we feel rage, it's for a reason. When we feel hurt, it's for a reason. And it's one thing to just give into it. And it's another thing to look at it, be with it openly, without judgment, with curiosity, so that we can learn what it's trying to tell us. Mm-hmm. I hurt because I was just wounded. I mm-hmm. hurt because I was just shamed. I hurt because someone I love doesn't love me back. Mm-hmm. That hurt needs to be known and processed so it can become something. 
It can become meaningful. I feel shame because I can't provide for my family. Well, you know what's on the other side of that? Once we've processed that shame, I'm going to find another way to provide for my yeah. family. Yep. Exactly. I'm going to I'm going to pursue my dignity. I'm going to find worth for my family through other avenues than material wealth. You know, there's a line within um, relationship and attachment oriented work, which is mm-hmm. one of my treatment orientations, um, that says, you know, we're we're wounded in relationship and we heal in relationship. Mm-hmm. And for people who have been part of communities or families or tribes or whatever that were abusive or hurtful or disavowing or whatever, for them to really heal and re-enter the world in in whole, Mm -hmm. they don't have to just heal with me Mm -hmm. or with some other professional. They also have to heal in the context of other people. They have to experience that sense that I can be in group and community and there is such a thing as safe community. Mm -hmm. There's such a thing as having my truth honored. There's such a thing as having my boundaries respected. There's such a thing as being heard. Mm-hmm. You know, and and here being heard by one person that you're paying by hour, <laughs> it, it may feel good, but it's a little like, uh, yeah, this is nice, but you're probably just this way because I'm paying you. And I don't blame people for feeling that way, right? But when it happens in the context of a safe space that's mm-hmm. facilitated, mm-hmm. And everyone feels like, wow, this does feel so yummy. And mm-hmm. I'm with a group of people who are all very intentionally being here, very mm-hmm. um, care with care mm-hmm. and with um, mm-hmm. kindness. Wow, that feels super yummy. And wow, this is real about the world, right? Mm-hmm. This is this can be real. And then and then what goes from that is then I can be this in the world. Yeah. So first they receive, and then they can be it themselves, and they can be the person to embrace someone who's alienated. Mm-hmm. They can be the person who notices someone who's been um, pushed into a corner or neglected, mm-hmm. right? So we start to create a ripple effect if we can explicitly, consciously teach that we create community and we hold space mm-hmm. for each other. Self-care might stem from what we experience as individual pain and suffering, but it opens outward into community. It simply has to. The warm bath and the chamomile tea are the starting points of self-care, but not the destination. Because the changes and crises we are witnessing, they come from shared circumstances. And we're going to have to organize with each other to address them and really make change. That's something communities of color in the U.S. have known for a long time. In fact, if we dig deeper into the history of self-care, we're going to find it at work as a tool in deeply activist spaces decades ago and today. That's a history we need to know. How does self-care take us from individual reaction to connectedness and action? How does it link us into the bigger picture, into the work of democracy? How do we move from individual loss, grief, anger, and suffering to repairing this wounded and wounding nation? In part two of this episode, we will talk to three women experts in the histories and practices of collective self-care. A historian of medical activism and community clinics in the Black Power Movement, a scholar of Latinx reproductive healthcare self-groups, a historian of medical activism and community clinics in the Black Power Movement, a scholar of Latinx reproductive health self-care groups, and an indigenous foodways expert. Please tune in. You'll be glad you listened. You can find links to Gretchen Malios' therapy and yoga practice at our website, 
AmericanBeautyPodcast.org.